Repent. That's the word of the week on this second Sunday of Advent, on the road to repentance. And I have to say, I find this a bit odd. It's an odd theme for this time of year. What does repentance have to do with Advent, let alone Christmas? If I were laying out an outline of sermon topics for this season, repentance would not have made the list. Seems like more of a Lent kind of thing. But I did not lay out this outline, and here it is in week two of Advent. Last week, our key word was readiness, and we were looking ahead down the road. Where are we going, and how will we know the way? And I pointed out the paradox of faith, that trusting that God will do again what God has done in the past, while at the same time recognizing that what God did in the past was almost always entirely unexpected and strange. And so in Advent, we are looking forward to the same old Christmas story, but recognizing that we may indeed be surprised as it comes again to us in our time. This week on the road, we are looking behind the other direction, considering from whence we've come. The key word is repentance. As the worship materials describe it, to embrace the new requires a letting go of the past. Repentance means we are letting go and making space for God's new work in us. That's what I learned about repentance from an early age, that it means turning around. Stop doing the wrong that you're doing, make it right, and do things differently from now on. The classic example was the kid getting caught shoplifting a chocolate bar from the corner store. It's not enough that he felt bad about getting caught. It's not enough that he felt guilty for stealing and for the harm that his actions cost the store owner. It's not even enough that he went back to apologize and to return the chocolate bar or to pay for it. When he goes through all of those things and changes his behavior so that it never happens again, that is repentance. In our on-the-road metaphor, repentance is turning around and choosing a different path. That is what John the Baptist was preaching in today's lectionary text from Mark chapter 1, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the Heichmann unauthorized edition, stop doing what you're doing, live differently, and you can be forgiven. Here's a powerful water ritual to help you remember this commitment. That's the kind of repentance that John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. And when God's people repent, as the prophet Isaiah writes in another of the texts for today, God is more than pleased to offer forgiveness and absolution. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term that her penalty is paid, and that she has received from God's hand double for all of her sins. Your time has been served, your fine has been paid, and now you're free. A clean break from the past, a fresh start, a blank slate. That's the evangelical Christianity that I was raised in at its best. Jesus paid it all. Sin and guilt has been washed away, whatever you've done you can start again and live a new life in Christ. As the prophet Isaiah says again a couple of chapters later, 
Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Even now it springs forth. Can you see it? Don't feel bad about that chocolate bar, kid. It's like it never happened. Do better next time. And then you'll see the, the new kid, the new creation. That's who you truly are. So much so that nobody will even remember how you used to be. The old has gone, the new has come. That's good news, right? Well, yes, and maybe no, depending on your perspective. Several years ago, I was part of a Christian Peacemaker team's learning tour, exploring justice and reconciliation in an indigenous community. As part of the program, each night the group would gather around for a time of reflection and conversation around various scriptures. When it was my turn to lead, I chose that passage from Isaiah 43 of God giving people a fresh start, bringing a highway through the wilderness, a river of fresh water in the desert. Behold, I am about to do a new thing. This was right after the conclusion of the TRC process, and I was excited about that God was doing a new thing in our country through the work of genuine reconciliation. All the classic steps of repentance were there as far as I could see. Regret, remorse, restitution, what felt to me like a genuine apology from the prime minister, and the beginnings of new ways of justice and peace. Waters in the desert, this was a fresh start for Canada and First Nations people, and I was so eager to be part of this new thing. But when I read that passage to the group, one person didn't share my enthusiasm for this prophecy. Tim was kind of my polar opposite. Serious and quiet, is an urban guy, a hipster, definitely not a church person. So this text from Isaiah was brand new to him, and he hadn't been trained on what he was supposed to do with it, how he was supposed to hear it. So the rest of the group, as we were supposed to do, we were drawn to the poetic and hopeful language of rivers in the desert, of peace so strong that even the wild animals joined in the harmony. But Tim zeroed in on the lines right before that one. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. He found that quite disturbing, that God would use God's power to wipe away the past that the new thing seemed to require a total erasing of what had come before. Tim told us that he was part of a project in his city that was doing the opposite. Actually, they were digging up stories from the past that had been forgotten or erased by selective amnesia. His group researched the history of different neighborhoods in the city, particularly the ghettos, the immigrant districts, the areas that were being gentrified. And they found all of these stories that they hadn't heard before, inspiring stories of hard workers, creative artists and leaders, sad stories of obstacles too big to overcome, dramatic stories of people beaten down and silenced. Then they found creative ways to bring these stories to light. Tim wrote in an online magazine and he led Jane's Walk storytelling tours he helped with a guerrilla plaque project um, where they would install unofficial plaques in public spaces telling the stories of the things that had happened there. Rather than forgetting the past, Tim cared about making sure that it was remembered, working to connect the past and the future here in the present. 
Tim knew, as the writer William Faulkner put it, the past is never dead. It's not even past. That's a truth that the Christian model of repentance I described earlier struggles with. Life is rarely as straightforward as that kid shoplifting a chocolate bar. The ramifications of my failings are complex and widespread. They're not easily repaired, no matter my intentions. And so when I claim a fresh start, as I walk down the road marveling at God's grace, someone else is often left holding the bag, paying the true cost of my freedom. The past isn't past for them. They're still living with the consequences. And so am I, really, in other ways. That past will always be part of my story, even with repentance. That was my new friend's point in rejecting the offer of holy forgetfulness in that Isaiah prophecy. A new thing that is not grounded in the truth of the past will only cause more harm. As I saw over and over again in that CPT learning tour, the legacy of Indian residential schools, the larger legacy of colonialism, cannot be undone by an apology and cash payments. No matter how sorry we are, no matter how pure our intentions may or may not be. We're still learning, as the movie Magnolia puts it, we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. That's the paradox of repentance. In the metaphor of the road, this Advent season, we can choose a different path moving forward, but the path behind will always be, forever be part of the road that we're on. We can turn, but we cannot leave it behind. That's a tough one to resolve. I believe in the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace, the fresh start of repentance. I believe in the unconditional love of God and that it is entirely unhelpful and unhealthy to walk through life carrying guilt and shame for the past. And I also believe in accountability, in responsibility, that the wrongs of the past must be reconciled and learned from and that the past is inextricably bound with the future, that even with forgiveness and grace, where we've been is part of who we are, who we will be. The past and the future are always part of the same road, even as we move forward. So what do we do with that? Perhaps another metaphor would be helpful. A third text for today comes from Psalm 85. Like the prophecy I read earlier from Isaiah, this poem is looking forward, imagining a future where God has restored the people of God to peace and prosperity. The writer is describing how this will come about, and in the middle there is this great line, mercy and faithfulness have come together, justice and peace have kissed. In the fashion of the ancient Hebrew poets, the phrase is a parallel echo, Mercy paired with justice, faithfulness paired with peace. To me, those words, mercy and justice, are facing back down the road, making right the wrongs of the past. And the other pair, faithfulness and peace, shalom in Hebrew, as we know, that is forwards facing. It's looking down the road to a future where all people, all of creation is held in right relationship with each other. Justice for the past, peace for the future, and here for a moment, in the middle, in the present, they meet each other. They kiss. 
I think that's a great image. It reminds me of weddings, that moment when the happy couple has professed their love in front of God and these witnesses, and they seal the deal with a kiss. As a pastor, I have a very unique vantage point for that moment of the first kiss. Physically, I'm like standing right there, trying not to invade their personal space, trying not to ruin the photographs, and I'm trying not to look like I'm backing awkwardly away from them either. Relationally, I have a unique perspective as well. I've typically just been through premarital counseling, marriage prep courses with them, and that gives me a pretty intimate look at their relationship. I will have asked them to tell me about the fights that they've been in, the conflicts that keep coming up in their relationship. Not because I'm judging whether or not they should get married or whether they're right for each other, but because everybody has conflicts and I want them to be aware of those things that are gonna continue to be part of their life. I want them to be able to be healthy as they have conflicts. I want them to communicate about these things well. And let me tell you, for even the healthiest of couples, those conflicts aren't always resolved by the time the wedding rolls around. Most couples have not worked everything out by the big day. It's totally normal for them to be carrying baggage, holding on to past hurts, and gritting their teeth through the stress of wedding arrangements and family drama and cold feet. Nobody starts marriage with a clean slate. No relationship has achieved that perfect equilibrium of justice on the wedding day. Just as surely, everybody in the room knows that perfect peace is not the future that awaits any couple either. Yes, we smile and nod solemnly as they swear to always be true, always be patient and kind, always forgive and trust and hope and persevere till death does them part. As their friends and family, we're, we're rooting for them. We don't take bets on who will be the first to break those vows or whether or not they'll even make it past the honeymoon before the first careless word or impatient demand slips out and leads to the first fight of the new marriage. But we know the future of peace is certainly not a given on any wedding day. And yet, even with an unsettled, imperfect, unresolved past and an uncertain, conflict-filled future, in that moment, in the wedding ceremony, in front of a whole room full of people, most of whom know the truth, they look into each other's eyes, they come together, and they kiss. And they mean it. They really do. It's a naive moment, but a sincere one. In that moment, justice for the past, a true righting of the wrongs, that's a possibility. They believe that they can deal with whatever came before together. And in that moment, they can imagine a future of shalom. They believe that they will work it out, whatever comes next, together. Who knows how long it will last and who cares in that moment? The kiss is a moment of incredible possibility and beauty. Surprise. Somewhere deep underneath this pragmatic, serious front that I put out there lies a hopeless romantic. Go figure. I think that's the invitation of true repentance, to live in those moments of possibility as much as we can. The past ain't through with us, but we don't have to learn all of its lessons today. 
and the future is unsettled, but we can still take the next step with integrity and humility and trust. For a moment, we can hold together accountability and mercy. For a moment, we can accept forgiveness without abandoning those we have harmed. For a moment, we can let go of what needs to be released while still holding on to what needs to be remembered. As I learned on that CPT learning tour, as a settler, my part in the journey of reconciliation in Canada, at this time, mostly it's just about showing up, truly listening. I can hear the stories of the past. I can empathize with the pain, share the frustrations at the slow pace of change. I can recognize that me, my people were and are the cause. I can accept responsibility for my place in the story. And at the same time, I can hold my feelings of guilt in their proper perspective. I can understand my complicity without being overwhelmed by it. I can name and celebrate progress. I can accept the grace that is offered. I can choose a different way in small steps and in big ones. I can both remember the past along with my friend Tim and imagine a few better future with the prophet Isaiah. For a moment, impossible justice and unlikely peace embrace one moment at a time. So I asked, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? I find that Advent is all about these moments of possibility. John the Baptist making the audacious claim that this was the time, that he was the long-awaited voice in the wilderness, and that you ain't seen nothing yet. For a moment, one baptism at a time, it was all possible. Joseph and Mary, fearing judgment from their community, facing rejection for improprieties real or imagined. Their past was shrouded in shame, their future was totally hazy, but they showed mercy and faithfulness to each other, to their God, one step at a time. And the Emmanuel, the Christ child, the almighty God, clinging to life in the arms of his mother, one breath at a time. Even this year of COVID Christmas, the season will be full of moments of possibility where the past and the present come together, imperfectly but truly. May God grant us the grace to hold on to what needs to be held and to let go of what needs to be released. It was only after I finished writing this whole sermon that I realized that pretty much everything I was trying to say is summed up in the classic serenity prayer popularized by the AA movement. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Christ did, this messed up world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that God will make things right if I surrender to their will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with God forever and ever in the next. Amen.